So I'm here with you. Today we are going to talk about some bad decisions. Anybody ever made a bad decision in this room? Oh, yeah. All right, maybe. Maybe it was like a reply all to a staff email that you're like, ooh, I probably shouldn't have done that, right? Uh, but it starts as kids. We start to make these bad decisions. Normally, bad decisions are followed by that really great sentence, Mommy, watch this. Oh, it's not going to be good after that. But it doesn't, it kind of continues as we get adults. It's more of a, hey, honey, hold my beer. Whatever happens after that sentence, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, we're going to talk about someone who made some poor decisions in the life, the very end of the life of Jesus. And these poor decisions have really defined him. They are they are so closely tied to who he is and what we think about him. And history remembers this character solely from this poor decision. Um, I was, a couple years ago, uh, before COVID, I got invited to the Kennedy Center and to go watch Leslie Odom Jr. It was before I knew anything about Hamilton. It was after Hamilton, but I was like, all right, who's this guy? I don't really care. It's this Christmas thing. I want to go to the Kennedy Center. It's an incredible place. I want to see it. It was a Christmas concert. It was a military thing. We got invited to come along. And while we went to that event, where we part, we part at the Watergate Hotel. And for me, I was amazed. I was like, we're stepping back in history. There's this iconic hotel that is remembered solely for the, the bad thing that happened there. And so very much like we can remember a hotel, it's time for us to move forward for, the, for the, all the gates, all the gate scandals, all right? We need to move forward. We need to let this hotel just be a hotel, right? And not be tied to this thing in history. I know I'm not helping that cause right now. But this character is really tied in that same way. 2,000 years later, we have some creeds in our Christian faith. Now, in our non-denominational bent of Christianity, we don't really get into creeds. We like to say, like, the Bible is the only creed that we need. But creeds are kind of helpful markers in history for us to go, okay, what do we believe about Jesus? If we change this word here, or if we do this, then it, it, it really changes our, our beliefs. And so two really big creeds in the history of the, of the church, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, both mention Pilate in conjunction with the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. History has put its mark to say, yeah, there was this guy named Pilate, and he did some really bad things, and it's at his hand that Jesus was crucified. Now, there is a reason why they do that. They want to make sure that they anchor this death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in history. There was the real Roman governor that we do know about, that all of this happened in this time. So it is kind of an anchoring point for our Christian faith. But Pilate is known solely for his actions in this evening before his death. Secular historians don't mention Pilate at all 
other than this. We do get some extra things about Pilate from some of the Jewish historians in history that want to help us understand who this guy is. So what I'd like to do today is tell two stories about Pilate, help you kind of understand who he was as a person and as a leader and the things that motivated him. And then we'll look at some of the bad decisions, some of Pilate's poor decisions that he made the night that Jesus was arrested. So the first story, uh, we'll call this uh, set the tone. So Pilate comes into power. He's appointed a governorship in this area of Judea. The emperor, like emperor Tiberius, is the one that puts him in place. And so he's the new guy on campus. So what is he going to do? How is he going to set the tone for his rule and for his reign? Now, he wants to make sure that he's doing things by the book. He is a good Roman leader and a good Roman governor. And so what he wants to do is make sure that everyone knows how good and important Rome is and wants to make sure that this kind of troublesome area in, in Judea where all these Jews live, and this is where Jerusalem is, it's kind of known for being a little feisty. And they have their own kind of religion down there, and they, they do their own stuff, and we're overseeing them, but we kind of tolerate them, and they tolerate us, and we're, we're oppressing them. And so he wants to come in and set a really good Roman strong tone. So what he does is he takes these shields, these shields that bear the image, right, the image of Caesar, an icon. You should have no other gods before him. You should have no graven images. So he takes these big shields that bear the image of Caesar, who they claim to be God, and he starts putting them up all around Jerusalem. He starts trying to assert his Roman emphasis. He mints new coins, and on these coins, he puts pagan deity symbols on these coins and makes the the Jews there that have their own gods that are trying to, to get away from Rome, he makes them use these coins with a graven image of a pagan god on it. People don't like it. People are really frustrated. People are really upset about Pilate trying to set the tone for his rule like this. There are are uprising, there are protests, and protests are not good for political rule. We learn a lot about Pilate and his line of thinking through this. The the second story that we have is, is Pilate, how's he going to get stuff done? What's he actually going to do when he is in charge? What type of projects is he going to be about? Now, he wants to govern well, and so a huge part of how to govern well is to manage his province and manage it well financially. You, you need income, and income is going to come from things like taxes, and you need to use those taxes to do projects that benefit your constituents. This makes sense in our part of the country, right? This is how politics works. The only problem is he doesn't have the income to do the projects he wants to do. He wants to build this aqueduct, and he wants to take water from outside of Jerusalem and bring it into the city, but he doesn't have the finances to do it. 
Now, if you remember week one of our series, we talked about Caiaphas, the high priest. Chad did a really great job helping us understand that any Jew, no matter where they lived, they needed to pay a temple tax. They sent money to Jerusalem, to the temple, and as a result of that, the temple had tons of money. If you haven't heard that message, go back, look at the podcast, uh, listen to that message, because it was, it was really helpful to understand the financial and religious structure at play here. Well, Pilate, as being the Roman governor of this area, looks around and says, you know what? This is my province. I am the ruler here. I am second only to Caesar. There is all this money here at the temple in my province. I need to do this project. Therefore, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take the temple funds and steals money from the temple to build his aqueduct. Now, this was crazy. All types of, of uprising, crazy protests. Tens of thousands of people protest against Pilate in this decision. So what Pilate does is he takes his soldiers and he puts them in plain clothes and he sends them out among the protesters. They give a sign and then his soldiers start to beat all of the protesters, kills a great many number of them, and then a, a whole bunch more are trampled in the stampede that happens. He is a man that rules with a brute and a force, and he is cruel. Philo, a Jewish philosopher in Egypt, said of him in, in a couple of his writings, and one he said, by nature rigid and stubborn, stubbornly harsh. He said of Pilate, he is of spiteful disposition and, and an exceeding wrathful man. Who is this Pilate? He is a zealous, mid-level manager willing to do about anything to stay in power. Now, some of you are thinking about your boss right now, aren't you? <laughs> Hopefully, you're not the mid-level manager <laughs> that people are thinking about that. That's not you. Now, um, this kind of highlights who Pilate is and, and the type of thinking that he had, the type of leader that he was. He was a cruel and brutal person. Um, but what we want to do is I want to look at the decisions that he makes this night that Jesus is arrested. Now, I think some of these decisions will help us understand how we make decisions and how we sometimes can make poor decisions, but what I want us to do is I hope that we can make better decisions about who Jesus is. That's my goal, that, that at the end of this, we can make a really good, informed decision about Jesus. All four Gospels uh, talk about Pilate. They all talk about his role in Jesus' death. They all cover different aspects of this. So we're, we're going to stitch together kind of four different Gospels to get this full story so we can see what Pilate does on this evening. Uh, Luke 23 is where we'll spend most of our time. So you have your Bible on your app or something. If you want to go to Luke 23, we'll spend most of our time there. The, the Roman or the, uh, the high priests and the religious leaders there, they need to bring Jesus to Pilate for a very specific reason. 
they're allowed to kind of have their political structure, and they're allowed to have some autonomy, but what they don't have is they don't have the power of capital punishment. That only rests in Pilate. In fact, Pilate, the Roman governor, he is judge, jury, and executioner. He has total, complete control in this situation. And so they bring Jesus to him, but they need to bring Jesus to him in the right way. They have an agenda. They want Jesus gone. They want him out of the way because he's kind of messing up everything that they're doing. And so they want to make him look like a criminal. So they rough him up a little bit. They've already beat him. They've already bound him. And so they're presenting Jesus to Pilate as an already convicted criminal. We wouldn't waste your time, Pilate, if he wasn't guilty. We wouldn't waste your time if he didn't look like this, already like a ragtag man beaten and in chains. So they bring him to Pilate. And the very first thing, the very first poor decision that Pilate makes is he goes against his gut. You ever have a sense when you need to make a decision, you go, oh, I think I know what's right. I think I know what I need to do in this situation. He has that same gut reaction as well. Now, in Roman legal proceedings, it's not innocent until proven guilty, okay? It's actually quite the opposite. And because Jesus doesn't give a defense of who he is, he's, he would technically automatically be condemned. So here's what happens. In Luke 23, 1 through 4, the whole assembly rose up. They led him, Jesus, off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, Jesus, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. Pilate doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about the, the Roman, uh, the, the Jewish system. He opposes, payment, uh, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Not true, but this is probably getting Pilate's attention at this point, and claims to be Messiah. Again, Pilate doesn't care about that, doesn't care about the, the religious system. And then they say, a king. He claims to be a king. All right, well, that could be problematic because there's one king and there's one emperor, and that's Emperor Tiberius at this point. So, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you really trying to set up another kingdom here? And Jesus answers, and he says, you have said so, Jesus replies. Jesus answers, this is very much like Yoda, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, king of Jews, you have said so, right? His, his gut as, as he's interacting with Jesus here, he's like, I, I don't think this is really what's going on. This doesn't seem like someone who is trying to start a rebellion and trying to overthrow the empire of Rome and try to set up shop. Pilate will never understand a kingdom that is temporal. He will never understand a kingdom that is not political and, uh, and, and, and military in nature. And so as he's talking with Jesus back and forth, he's just, it's almost like, ah, this doesn't sit right. What's, why are they bringing him to me? I don't get it. In Luke 23, 4, he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. My gut reaction is, no, he's, he's all right. He's fine. 
eventually he's going to make a poor decision to go against his gut. The next thing we see Pilate do in this, this story is he passes the buck. He, he wants to punt the decision. He, he wants someone else to make this decision for him. In Luke 23, 5 and 7, he says, But they insist, the, the leaders insist, he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way down here. Now, Pilate sees a way out here. He goes, whoa, 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 did, did you say Galilee? Because that's not my region. That's, that's up north. That's not down here in Judea. Well, if he's from Galilee, that's Herod. Let's send him over to Herod, and let's let him make the decision. I don't want to make this decision. I'll let someone else do it. Now, for me, this, this is my biggest trap in my decision-making. A lot of it probably has to do with my upbringing. My uh, father is an emergency room doctor. My brother is an emergency room doctor. Now, they are both pretty type A people. You want them to make decisions and to make decisions quickly, am I right? So when I'm growing up and they say, hey, where do you want to go out to dinner? I, I know that I don't have to make that decision. They'll make it. I'm just going to sit back, and I don't care. You make your decision, and, and it's fine. Now, the problem is that I can do that in, in my leadership, too, that I don't really want to be on the hook for it. I, I don't, I don't want to be the one that puts the stake in the ground and has to make a decision that you're going to be upset with. So I'll just maybe sit back, or I'll maybe talk around the problem. I'll, I'll, I'll push it off. I'll pass the buck. I'll let someone else make that decision. That's this is not in a healthy way, right? This is, hey, here you go. There's me being honest, all right? Now you know some of my dysfunction, okay? But that's what I have to watch out for. Pilate doesn't want to make this decision. He tries to pass the buck, tries to make Herod make the decision. Sends Jesus off, Jesus comes right back. The next thing that Pilate does, his next poor decision, is he, he ignores his trusted advisors. Maybe you have a big decision at work. You have something going on. You got to make this, this big decision, big project that's happening. Now, do you want to do that without all the data? No, you, you want to be able to talk to people. You want to be able to, to get those numbers. You want to be able to have those reports. You want to talk to these consultants over here. You want to learn what they, they know. You want to bring all this together before you make your decision. Now, Pilate had some help. He had some help. He just didn't listen to it. You might, you, we might do well to see what happens here. In Matthew 27, 19, it says, While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, he sent his, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, Pilate is maybe more concerned about a pros-con list. He's more concerned about a cost-benefit analysis. Maybe he's trying to do a SWOT analysis or a pest analysis, maybe a decision tree. All he needed to do was listen to his wife. And all the women are like, yes, I knew that I liked the Bible. And, and they're done now. They're like, I'm, I'm going to go home. I got, got what I needed, Okay. He ignores the advice of his wife. I, I uh, was interviewing for a job one time, and a uh, really, really cool job, really, really great church, 
place kind of wanted to be. And when we were there interviewing, my, my wife broke out in, in hives. And she was so stressed out. She felt so ill. She was like, I don't know what's going on, but I do not have peace about this. I don't feel good about this decision. And I, I know that it looks good and I know that it sounds good. I don't think we can do this. I don't think you should take this position. And I said, well, honey, it's too bad. I'm going to take it, right? I didn't, I didn't do that. I'm standing before you today. Of course I didn't. Of course I didn't take the position. But, but it was hard, all right? But I am so thankful for lots of different reasons that in that moment, I listened to my wife. Listen to your trusted advisors. Do not ignore them. Make sure that you have trusted advisors in your corner, right, that can help you with those decisions. Um, Origen, who's a Greek father, kind of early father in the, the Greek church, uh, there's, there's a tradition that his wife became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection because of this dream. Uh, we don't necessarily know if that's true, but there is this legend that she eventually became a follower of Jesus. Kind of interesting story. Now, the fourth thing that Pilate does here is he attempts to appease. He wants to appease this crowd, the people bringing these charges against Jesus. In Luke 23, 13, it says, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, all right, I've thought about it. You brought me this man as one who was inciting people of a rebellion. I've examined him. I've done my due diligence. We've done this in your presence, and I find no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, because he sent him back to me as well. So you can see he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Isn't that interesting? He says, hey, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Why would he punish someone who is innocent? In verse 22, they, they kind of like argue back and forth. No, don't do that. And they argue back and forth. In verse 22, he says, For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I find him on no grounds for the, for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. He's trying to appease this crowd. He's trying to punish Jesus for a crime he knows that he didn't commit hoping that this action might appease this group. He has fear that this political unrest would look unfavorably upon him, that those in leadership above him might look down upon him if he can't squelch this, this uprising. So he says, I'll punish him. And there are two ways that he could punish him. Uh, he could, what's called flogging, he could use a whip or, or a, a cane, he could flog him, and the point of that is to inflict uh, pain, to, to bruise, to punish. But the Romans also have something that only they can do. The, the Jewish people, they, they flogged Jesus already. He was already beat up. He was already roughed up. But the Romans can also scourge 
Now, scourging is the point of ripping flesh and, and the way that they used the whip. And the point of this type of punishment was to expose and to rip skin. Uh, the historian Josephus says that he was whipped until his bones laid bare. Now, we could explain a lot on how this happened and what the practice was. I know there are sensitive years in this room, but however shocking, however horrifying, however uncomfortable it may be to hear what happened to Jesus and how he was punished is 100% true of what happened to him. That he endured a terrible scourging for you and for me. Pilate attempts to hurt Jesus so badly that the crowds would be moved to compassion. It would get so graphic that they might go, okay, all right, we've seen enough. Let's, let's stop this. Let's be done with it. But Peter or Pilate underestimates the mob mentality. Kind of the, one of the last things that he does here in an attempt to, to win this battle with the religious leaders is he, he attempts to bargain for their approval. He wants to bargain to be able to say, hey, maybe we can have an exchange. There's this practice, this tradition on this, this holy week of Passover where I turn over a prisoner to you, someone that is, that is actually guilty, and I, I turn them over to you. And it's kind of this goodwill gesture of us as your, your oppressors and uh, kind of overseeing you will we'll do you a favor once a year and give you back this prisoner who, who really did wrong, but this is our goodwill gesture. It's this reverse Hunger Games situation where I, I'm trying to win you over and win your approval and win this goodwill. And he says, maybe I can do this. Who would you rather me release to you, Jesus or Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was actually involved in an uprising. He was actually involved in trying to take over the Roman government. He really was a murderer. We'll talk about Barabbas later in our series, but the crowds shout, give us Barabbas. And Pilate's like, why? What did he do? No, like, they go back and forth and like, no, crucify Jesus. We want Barabbas crucify him. He tries to make a deal with the mob, and it does not go well. He tries to win their approval, but in the end, he decides to grant their demands. In the end, he decides to surrender Jesus to their will. Why did he surrender? Why did he give in to this crowd? It wasn't because they made a good point. It wasn't because they made an intellectual argument that won him over. 
It wasn't because he understood the problem in a different way. He wanted to settle this. He wanted to not let things get out of control. He wanted to keep his grip on power and stay in charge. So he says, okay, fine. I'll give you what you want. But not without some theatrics. Matthew 27, 24, 25 says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that the crowd instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowds. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is not on me. This is on you. I'm innocent. This is you and your responsibility. Now, what he's doing here is a a really cool thing. He's alluding to something in their own scriptures in Deuteronomy 21, where if you came across and you found a a dead body, you found someone, you're like, "I, I don't know what happened here, but this wasn't me. This wasn't my responsibility. What you could do is there was this ceremony that you could do that spells it out in Deuteronomy 21, and then you get the elders together of the town, and together everyone says, oh, yeah, we didn't do this. We don't know what happened, but we are not responsible for this man's death. And here you have Pilate doing a one-man show of their own scriptures, saying this is not how this is supposed to work. This is not how we're supposed to put an innocent man to death. And as he says, I am not responsible. I wash my hands of this. The leaders The religious leaders shout these horrible things. His blood is on us and on our children. Pilate makes several poor decisions on the night of Jesus' arrest. Absolutely. But I'm more concerned about the one decision that he never made. You see, he never made a decision about Jesus. He never made a decision about who really is Jesus. He knows he didn't deserve death, but who is Jesus? And that's the question I pose to you. Have you ever really thought about this? Have you ever really thought, okay, yeah, may I I believe he's a good guy, sure, Yeah, he's a good moral teacher. He's someone that I want my kids to learn about, and I want them to grow up in this way. But what does it really mean for you? Do we believe what Jesus said about himself? Do we just try to pass him off and say, oh, he was a really good teacher, and he he taught some good stuff, and there's some really good wisdom, and how how he, he talks about this? No, no, no. Do we really believe what Jesus said and taught? C.S. Lewis, famous author, you know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. He attends that there's only three things that we can believe about Jesus. When it comes down to it, you can only think three things about the person of Jesus. He, he was either a liar, he knew that he wasn't the son of God. He knew that he couldn't forgive sins, but he was a really good actor 
And he just said, I'm going to believe this, and I'm going to deceive people, and I'm going to make these claims, but I know they're not true. He was either a liar. He was either a lunatic. He actually did believe that he was God. He thought that he was leading people the right way. He thought that he could be the sacrificial lamb of God and forgive our sins and be the mediator between us and God. Like he just, he really believed that, but he was wrong. He's just a crazy guy. He's just a lunatic. Or we look at the things Jesus says. We look at the truths that he teaches And we have to come to the conclusion that, yes, that's really who Jesus is. He really is the way and the truth and the life. There really is no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus. Can we believe that or not? This Easter, we're going to baptize people. Easter Sunday is going to be a celebration. It's going to be a baptism Sunday. And if you've never made that decision, you've never stood before people to say, "Uh, yeah, I am going to put my stake in the ground. I do want to be obedient in baptism. We would love for you to do that. We would love for you to make that decision. On the QR code, on your seat, you, you can see a thing in there, interested in baptism. Let's have a conversation about what that means. We would love to walk you through that. Now, maybe you've made that decision, but you also know that it takes a, a daily walk. It takes work to know what Jesus says and to apply it in your life. And, and so my action step for you might be, this week, join us in the Bible reading plan. Really simple. It's on that QR code. Join us in reading Scripture five times this week. Be in God's word. Learn what he says. Learn how to make better decisions. And then the last one, be involved in community. Maybe join a life group so you can rub elbows with other people. You can learn from them. You can together encourage one another to follow Jesus together. The most important thing that we can ask. What if Jesus really is who he says he is? As you leave today, I want that question to be on your mind. What if Jesus really is who he says he is? And if so, what will you do about it?